Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Test Tubes in Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. Before we get started, I do want to make a quick announcement. This will be our final episode of season one. It has been 25 episodes of us going strong, so we need a well-deserved break to just kind of like sit back and plan all of our season two materials. So we'll be taking about a three to four week break, maybe a month depending upon what it looks like for us. We will obviously keep you updated. If you want to know exactly when we're coming back, I recommend that you join our Discord and we'll all still be active there because we can't help ourselves and we'll keep you updated with the plan moving forward. But yes, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being with us on this journey for the first season and we really hope that you've enjoyed. So before we get into today's episode, Hanny, do you want to go ahead and do our What Happened on This Day? Yes, I will. Um, this is a favorite of mine. So this is a birthday of Friedrich August Kekulé von Strodonitz. Kekulé was a German chemist traditionally attributed with devising the ring structure of carbon atoms in organic molecules. He determined the tetravalence of carbon and its ability to link in chains and form polyvalent radicals. He envisioned double or even triple bonds between carbon atoms, which was quite radical at the time, and isomers of molecules of the same atoms arranged differently. A really fascinating story um, associated with Kekulé is how his ideas about the structure of benzene, an organic compound, came to him in a dream. He had this vision of a serpent catching its own tail, like an Ouroboros, and basically asserted that this was a benzene structure. So he woke up from his dream and came up with the structure of benzene, which is absolutely foundational in structural theory of organic chemistry. I feel like there's a repeating trend in our episodes it came to me in a dream with Yang and Swedenborg and now this man can't get away from it okay so today's episode we're going to talk about bias we're going to talk about what bias is the different kinds of bias the place that bias has in both the spiritual and the scientific communities where we see it most and whether or not it's a good or a bad thing so before we get into that let's talk about what our definitions of bias are what does bias mean to both of you? Bias to me means like a viewpoint is colored based on the context as well as the point of view that the statement is coming from. I think bias is inherent in everything. Obviously, there are different kinds of bias, but uh, just in general, I think bias is something that is just uh, something that colors a point of view, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a really good good definition. Um, I actually, I, I th- thought it was more difficult to define uh, in its entirety the more I thought about it, because in its most basic terms, it is um, kind of being weighted towards one idea more than more than another. But sometimes bias is used in a way that implies an unfairness in that viewpoint, though that's not necessarily always the case. So I just I just think it's interesting how um, you have sort of varying definitions depending on the context. Yeah, I think I think the definition of bias in and of itself is very subjective in many ways. But in my personal perspective, it's a preconceived notion, usually towards something or someone based on information that we have, we perceive to have, or that we lack. And that last part of that definition that we lack is something that I didn't consider about bias until a couple of years ago, actually. But then I was really thinking about it. And I was like, no, we form biases based on a lack of information all of the time. It's not just things that you 
think you know or that you've been kind of programmed to think in a particular way about something, but it's also times when you just don't know something and so you assume a bunch of things. And that's a particular kind of bias, which we'll actually get into later. Yeah, I did search for like a true definition <laughs> of bias and there isn't one, so at least that one that I could find. Let's maybe get into what are the types of bias? What's the one that everybody knows off the top of their head? <laughs> we talk about it all the time. Confirmation bias. I think that Yay. was the first one that came into my, my head. So this would be when you you have an experience that comes along and kind of validates your existing views. And therefore, you're, you're kind of excluding information that maybe contradicts your views. And instead, you're uh, kind of only taking things on which uh, validate it. So I think a really common one in the occult community might be looking for signs and only acknowledging those which kind of reinforce your expectations. So and you hear about people like reading tarot. Say so somebody's looking for love and they're like reading tarot and they're like, oh no, the hermit can't be right. And then they, they, they put it down. They're like, they pick, they, they like shuffle the deck until they pick the lovers out, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think in the scientific community, this can come in a lot of forms. And many times I think it often comes from looking and interpreting a data. So I know in grad school, it's my laboratory, we had a tendency, we had a particular mechanism by which we thought something was happening. And when we looked at data that was similar to the data we presented in our papers, it was always through the bias of what we wanted to see. Like, right, this is the mechanism that we think works, this is how we think it happens. And so when we see other data, it was like, how does that data fit into the mechanism? So it was very much so a confirmation bias. Um, it was really hard at times, actually, to sit back and be like, let's just take the data with what it says and let's think of all its possibilities and not look at it with such a, like, a narrowed point of view. Yeah, trying to essentially confirm our theory, hypothesis. I feel like a confirmation bias is one of the biggest ones. It's like uh, oh. if you see a sign, if you're looking for a sign from a deity, you're going to find it, right? That's kind of how that <laughs> works. That's why... I usually look with a discerning eye at pendulums because I think they are just confirmation bias, the tool. Yeah, you touched on what I was just thinking, which is pendulums. I think those are pretty heavily skewed by some confirmation bias happening there. All right, next, we have the Dunning-Kruger effect. So this refers to how people perceive a concept or event to be simplistic because their knowledge about it might be simple or lacking. In my experience, a lot of people who are prone to, like within the spiritual community, I think I see this a lot more with people who have a tendency to kind of let their ego take over because it leads to this sense of arrogance and I know everything type of deal, which is not the case. And it can stem from the Dunning-Kruger effect because in that way you are oversimplifying things based on what you think you know. And because of that, you think you know everything, which is not the case. So I see, like, that's how I see it a lot within the scientific or in the occult community. But also I think just like in general, I see this amongst the public, especially, um, especially right now with a lot of the um, science that's actually going on, like within the world. People don't understand the basics of biology and, and bacteriology and, you know, microbiology just in general. And so they assume that it's way more simple than it actually is. And like, no, this is actually a very complicated process. And here's all this information that you're lacking. And it's not bad to not know everything, right? Like nobody can know everything. But I think it's important that we as a community, both in the sense of the world, but also within like spiritual and scientific communities, recognize when we are looking at something from a simplistic point of view 
and don't have the maybe knowledge or specialties to speak on something in its entirety. Yeah, I think like nothing has taught me how little I know and how stupid I am, <laughs> like a PhD. <laughs> Every day I, I come to terms with my own flaws. And I think, I think yeah, it can, it can be applied to everything, um, really. There's this idea of the kind of dark matter of knowledge. So this can be applied in a, a scientific sense, and it can also be applied just um, kind of to general knowledge. But so you you partition things that you know into or don't know into four categories: what you know you know, what you don't know that you know. So this is an, uh, introduces bias because maybe you don't know that you know certain things. What you know you don't know, and what you don't know you don't know. And that latter one, when that's is kind of more Dunning-Kruger effect, you're, you're unaware that you don't know something and it's really easy to influence you because you're you're not aware of your bias and you're not able to address it. And this might occur in like a metabolomic study. Maybe there's metabolites that are present um, and we're not able to measure them because we just don't have awareness of them. But it might also happen in your worldview. You might not know about a particular tradition. You might be thinking that you're forging a completely new path when actually there's all this information already available. So I think it's a really useful way to uh, divide up knowledge um, and also kind of scary because that latter category is, is quite quite a large one. <laughs> so the next one is implicit or also known as cultural bias, which is when people perceive other cultures as being, as being abnormal, outlying, different or exotic based on their own culture, which they perceive and experience. And this bias typically has a great effect on the development of stereotypes, as you, you would imagine. And so my question here is, what examples do we see of this within the occult community? I think it's really prevalent when we get into the discussion of traditions and people saying things like, like the stereotypes of the traditions, right? I think that stems a lot from this kind of bias. What do you both think? Yeah, I I see it everywhere. I think even even to a lesser, not not a lesser extent, but I also see this a lot that I feel like people don't really think about of um, people kind of perceive American culture as being the only culture in like the occult community, like the American perspective. And there's like a lot of times where people will be like, what, what are you guys on about? Because it's this idea, it's Americanization of like everything. And I see this a lot in the occult community too where people will kind of like ignore or not quite see that, you know, other cultures have a different perspective on things. I see that a lot with like specific folk traditions, right? Things like Irish and like Scottish folk practice that not a lot of people talk about. But when they do, it's often kind of like questioned, which I think is silly because it's a folk practice. Like why are you questioning something that you're not a part of? But anyway, and because it's not this like, commonly held gnosis people don't think that it's true and it's like well no it's just a different culture that you're not familiar with doesn't make it any less you know legitimate yeah i agree with um like irish and scottish traditions i think it's weird because i think like in america there are lots of people who are maybe part of that like diaspora where they've got a background that is you know irish or scottish or whatever and they perceive their experiences to be similar to somebody who is still living there today, whereas they actually might be quite different and they're just due to the divergences in the culture and the folklore that's been passed down and how that's evolved and just the ties to the land. And I think there's a cultural bias that's not necessarily always acknowledged. I think also with Eastern traditions, they tend to be 
somewhat fetishized. I think if you look with theosophy, you can see the uh, fetishization of certain Eastern uh, esoteric traditions which were kind of incorporated. And that still happens today, but obviously it's been warped and diluted in in many, many different ways. So there are more similarities between traditions across the world than maybe we would like to give credit for. But because of this cultural bias, we are prone to reject things that are not similar to our own worldview. I think that's a big problem in the spiritual community is we have such a separation of traditions when I think especially within like western esotericism and like the mystic the mystic traditions less so maybe in in folk tradition where it's based more upon like location but definitely in western esotericism like the lines that connect all the different traditions like they are there everything has stemmed from something else and people who try to separate it so distinctly I just think that's a serious flaw in a way of thinking, not acknowledging that everything did come from something before it or something within like a relatively similar time frame. The next one is optimism or pessimism bias. And I like to call this one more of like emotional bias because it essentially means that the outcome that one anticipates or perceives is entirely based on how they are feeling. I think this is actually one of the hardest to recognize on like a day-to-day basis, but I also think it's one of the ones that has the biggest influence on our day-to-day. What do you both think? Have you ever had like instances where an outcome in one like day was different than one that you had looking back? Although that could be related to another bias, but we'll get there later. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, this was a huge problem for me for a while. And like, I eventually had to stop learning to take things day by day and instead take them moment by moment because there would be plenty of times where I would view something as negative because I was already having a hard day and it's interesting now because I've I've been in a, in a very good place mentally and emotionally for a while that I'll, I'll notice that I actually skew the opposite way not to the point of like detriment though I can see how it could potentially be detrimental where I'll, I'll view something as being positive because I'm in like a good mood even if it's like a neutral experience Yeah, I'll be honest, this is actually not something that I had even thought about. And uh, that is definitely a flaw. That's something that I I should probably recognize more. I do tend to, I tend to meditate before rituals. And I think that tends to clear my mind and maybe put me into a sort of neutral emotional state. But I think there's a confounder for me where I tend to feel, other than quite drained, I, I, I tend to feel quite good after I've done a ritual. So then I'll always feel positive about the outcome because just the act of having done it feels good. And so it's actually, that actually makes it very difficult to extricate the outcome in an objective way. I mean, obviously we're not machines and and so many spiritual experiences can have such profound effects on our emotions that it's it's actually very hard to extricate the two. Yeah, that is really, really interesting. I hadn't really thought about um, optimism or pessimism bias much myself. What I think is really interesting about like this emotional bias is that, especially when it comes to maybe rituals and trying something new for instance like if you had a bad day and you so you did a ritual from a particular tradition let's say that you're a beginner and you're trying a bunch of different things right and you do some ritual and because you just had an off day your perception of how that ritual went was really bad like that could just throw you off of doing anything from that ever again or vice versa maybe the first thing that you did like seemed to go so you perceived it going really really well 
um, because you had like a really great day or or maybe you were looking for a sign and confirmation bias is coming in here too. And so you decide to like go down that path and maybe you spend so much time before you realize that that's not actually what interested you. I think that's kind of just thing to like be aware of and keep yourself in check. I do think, Kenny, like what you mentioned, doing meditation or something beforehand to really kind of bring you back to like neutral is a really good idea to kind to maybe like prevent that or at least lessen it to a certain extent but yeah and even like emotional bias when it comes to conversations this is not really a core science related but i still think it's important it's super important i once had a colleague of mine say that one of the worst things that we can do when we're conversing with somebody especially if it's any kind of like discourse or disagreement is come at it from two differing levels of emotion so let's say that you're really angry and they're just like apathetic, like they don't care, right? Instead of approaching that conversation in that moment when you were at like two opposite levels of the spectrum, it's better to bring yourself back down to neutral and then you can engage when you're both at that state because you'll have a civil conversation probably leading to a resolution rather than having this just like conflict um, that is going to ha probably have no resolution because you're just both so pissed at each other that it doesn't matter. And so I think this plays a role in like a lot of different situations, both within the occult and ultra side of it. Okay, information bias is basically a cognitive bias suggesting that amassing more information equals better decision making, even if that information is completely irrelevant to the subject being studied. Have either of you seen this play out in maybe the occult community? I am like really prone to over researching stuff like I am absolutely like 100% if, if I had to like pick my like tag myself as a bias on this list <laughs> then that would be the, the one because I yeah I think it's it's so easy to feel to feel like you just don't know enough to do something and I think this kind of comes into this idea of like experiential gnosis versus learning things um, from reading and things. So some things you can only really learn and do by experiencing them. So there is this tendency, I think, to lean towards, oh, you must do research, you must do research, you must do research, you must know as much as you can before you do expose At some point, you just have to take the training wheels off and just, and just go for it and make mistakes. And uh, I uh, am bad about doing that. <laughs> Yeah, I see this um a lot where people will say like, oh, you must have X, Y, Z experience before. I mean, I just made a whole video about it, specifically about deities. People consider them advanced. For the record, I don't. I think if you're a beginner, you can work with deities. <laughs> Feel free to hate me all you want. But I think it happens a lot. It, it, it tends to lead to fear mongering. And I often found too, like for me, I've been like looking into other aspects of spirituality and it's interesting because i'm finding myself being a beginner again right in some aspects because i'm not like used to those sorts of spiritualities i guess and it's allowed me now it's like i'm have a beginner mind or it's like i have a be i'm a beginner but i'm having a more advanced approach where i'm able to have almost a a step back to look at how i'm going about this process again and it's very interesting because I definitely I want to over research, but part of me knows that like I get overwhelmed where it's like I it's I'm so overwhelmed I don't even know where to start. And so it's like I don't want to start. So I think at some point, you know, you have to jump in that pool, right? You can warm up your feet all you want, but your body's not gonna get warm in that pool until you get in there. Candy, I'm a lot like you in that I will research things to death before I ever jump in because I'm terrified of something going wrong. And I think for me, this happens a lot with like books. Like if I'm looking for at a new topic, 
I will try to find all of like the recommended books and like I will buy them all <laughs> or download them all somehow but legally don't pirate books unless they're academic books then you can pirate them <laughs> but I will just like buy all of these books and I will like have them sitting as I go through them but more often than not I actually don't usually end up finishing everything because either I get bored <laughs> or I decide to actually do something and then I realize that the personal gnosis that I have from experience is just as like worthwhile following as like continuously reading the books not that that research should stop there i'm gonna actually often cycle through things but yeah i think there's also a difference between like intellectual information and also experiential like candy was saying earlier where they're both important and you can have this kind of bias like intellectually and still be a complete novice when it comes to the practical aspect of it so there really is a balance that has to be met there um, in order to, I think, be the most effective practitioner with whatever you're studying. But yeah, I felt like also I'm becoming a beginner at some things again. And it, like, reminds me of how difficult it was at the beginning. But Lord. Also, just like a side note, there are way more biases than we are talking about in this episode. We're kind of covering the most well-known, the most obvious ones that people kind of bring up in conversation. But if this is the topic that interests you, please like look into all of the others. There's literally so many, we could spend like three episodes covering them. So this is not all of them. Tag yourself, which bias are you? Yeah, this is going to be the Discord. You have to tag yourself with what kind of bias you are, or you think you have. I'm just going to have an option for all. Okay, hindsight bias is when people perceive events to be more predictable after they happen. Essentially, you're overestimating your ability to predict an outcome beforehand, even though the information that you had at the time was not super solid at best. <laughs> I don't know what the word I'm looking for there is. I think this specifically falls into the realm of like divination and astrology and then even placebo effects. What about you two? Yeah, I definitely think I see this happen a lot with yeah, specifically divination and astrology, which is why sometimes I'm still like, I know I, I, I love seeing all, all these astrologers talk, but part of me is still a little bit dubious because of hindsight bias. And also there's another kind of bias that we didn't quite touch on. It's, I don't know if it's quite a bias, but it's almost this idea of like, it's kind of confirmation bias as well, seeking things out that you expect to happen. It's a little bit of confirmation bias. I think there's a specific one for that. So that's part of the reason why I get a little I'm a little dubious of certain things because I think hindsight bias can be really strong. Like how many times have I heard people be like, oh, it was so clear that X deity was reaching out to me because of this, this, and this. And it's easy to put that pattern together because human beings love patterns. We put everything into patterns and categorizations. It makes sense that people would retroactively see those signs, even if they weren't necessarily there to begin with like I've done this before and it's not to say that if you see something resonate with you in hindsight that that invalidates it but I think it's something to keep in mind do you think this happens more as even historically like looking back at like if you if we were talking going to talk about like reconstructionism right do you think maybe hindsight bias is like a huge potential obstacle in actually creating like a practice that is similar to what might have been the original or just like history in general i'm not quite sure that that would be hindsight bias necessarily i mean people definitely did it historically <laughs> they're like this is clearly what this means and it's like no 
no you're just no <laughs> or it's like i've seen this happen with like star trek for example it'll be like star trek predicted x and i'm like it's just a random technology like tech toy that they i think like one time they were literally using like a calculator they used it as like a what someone was like oh it's like a pager I'm like, well, what? <laughs> so I see that happen in, in the mundane world as well, where people will think that someone has predicted something, but they really didn't. I think um, in terms of reconstruction, it tends to be less a hindsight bias and more a bias in the availability of information. And of course, the um, places where information was preserved tend to be uh, limited to maybe certain subsets of society or cultures which have written things down or cultures which have surviving languages that kind of thing although i i will say that hindsight bias um, was discussed even historically and um, i was interested by this because i think sometimes we think about bias and and science and our scientific worldview as somewhat modern but there were philosophers discussing it um you know thousands of years ago um, cicero actually produced a dialogue on divination and he referred to superstitio and how your bias can skew divinatory results. And I think he actually talks about hindsight bias in that. So he would talk about how augurs would, so augurs is uh, an augur is somebody who uses birds to divine things, and how they would not only use the results of the present, but they would use their previous experiences to inform the current scenario. And obviously, that's a form of hindsight bias. So it's, it's just kind of interesting that we were having this dialogue thousands of years ago, and it doesn't seem to have <laughs> progressed very much. Like we're still we're still struggling with these with these issues. Yeah, I think the biggest one that came to mind for me was astrology. Like people will pull up their charts, right? Like during your reading, and the astrologer will ask like probing questions about you know what they see, and it's like did such and such a thing happen? You know, on like such and such a time, however many years ago or so it was, and like looking back, you can make the connections. You can be like, oh yeah this happened maybe this is attributed to this and i think it's a combination of both hindsight and confirmation bias happening there but as i was like thinking about i was like that's the most obvious one i think that's the easiest to do for me because um astrology while it is often used for the future it can also be used a lot for the past i think especially for like natal chart readings there's a lot of both confirmation and hindsight bias you look back on like your personal experiences and then when somebody offers astrological explanation as to like maybe why you reacted in a situation or why something happened in your career or why like something happened to your family it's like oh yeah let me put those two together because in hindsight it appears there was a connection in the first place i also think that can happen a lot with like the placebo effect kind of like i mentioned earlier like looking back you can say oh well this thing happened to me as a result of doing taking this other action and we can sometimes make it out to be something more than just the placebo effect that that's what it was or make connections elsewhere that maybe they didn't previously exist that is the danger i would like i often talk about how it's important to like observe in the present but also go back and, ob and observe later but i think hindsight bias when you're going back and observing something that happened in the past it's really important to keep that in mind because that's a huge potential obstacle to really being able to like objectively analyze what might have happened previously. I kind of want to talk about books a little bit. So in particular, like books and recommendations and I don't want to say approved literature because that kind of makes it sound like there's some kind of state mandated <laughs> Fahrenheit 451 kind of deal going on. But um, I do think that there is maybe a bias towards acceptable viewpoints or popular viewpoints because of books that are popular, content creators, if we, if we dare call them that, who are popular and have particular views. And it's generally, generally, in my opinion, generated by social media, but 
I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. That definitely is a kind of bias. I think it's called like group bias or something along that line where a collect a group's like thoughts and opinions on things are considered better than something else because they're a part of a close-knit community. And I do agree with you. I think this is actually where the whole blacklist book problem comes from, right? This idea that like a community or a certain number of creators have banned particular books on this list for whatever reason. Most of them are dumb. There's a couple that are valid, but <laughs> most of them are dumb. And so then the entire community is like, oh, we can't read these books because so-and-so said so. And I think that's just kind of silly. Um, I've talked a couple times on here how I think that we should be reading public, like problematic texts by problematic authors. Keeping in mind, obviously, the problems, like, don't just go in blind. But yeah, that's definitely something, a bias that I see happen a lot, is that something is so heavily promoted or suggested, even, like, an idea. I see this happen a lot in the spiritual community, where, like, an idea is pushed by a collective group who are respected within the community for, you know, good reason. And it all of a sudden becomes this, like, verified idea. And I'm like, is it verified because it has supporting evidence behind it or like historical evidence or is it verified because these people who you respect have said that it it is so you know what I mean yeah (laughs) I feel that so much like there are so many random I don't even know how to describe them so many random things that you hear when you're a beginner in the community you're not even a beginner just like sort of things that people tell you that are supposed to be like basic knowledge and some of them so like I left the occult community for like how many like five years pretty much I was still like reading books and engaging my own spiritual practice but I was just divorced from the like online and interpersonal scene and when I came back in 2020 I was like what what like people were saying things that like I had and I'd been a part of the prior to that I'd been a part of the occult community for seven years so it wasn't like I I had never interacted with other practitioners before and it's just like what what happened here so there's definitely things and we saw this happen with like witch blur too I don't know if either of you were on witch blur I was there's definitely things that came up on witch blur and like trying to source that shit was crazy. Like I've tried. It is harder to find source like to source and find the the root of some of those claims than it is to I don't know find a historical ancient sources that have been lost to time. It's wild how in a world where we have Google and way better search abilities that some of these things are still get buried. And I I really it confuses me what people just take it as granted but it's it's like yeah which for or even no. like like what is like pagan amino where you had all these people posting like their <laughs> blogs and shit on amino i was like oh my oh, god. god not amino they, like, you can't find sourcing for that those kind of things anywhere i mean it's awful i think the other- witch god. talk obviously oh yeah, yeah witch talk fuck witch talk man it's interesting because like there have been a couple of instances where servers that like I'm in have had moments where it's like post your hot takes right and a lot of like the takes that used to be hot are like no longer hot for the reason that I stated previously which is that it's accepted amongst a group of people and so they're no longer hot takes it's just like a thing it's like yeah that's totally true and I'm like okay but like it's still low-key hot take it is funny that you also mentioned coming back and having it be so different like 
getting into esotericism and really trying to go back to like the roots of a lot of these ancient like mystic traditions, I am shocked a little bit at like how different the occult community is now. And I think that if people from the ancient mystic traditions came to like the current times and looked at our occult community, they'd be like, what even is this? This is not the same thing. Like it's been so just divorced from the original mystic traditions and their purpose, really. I don't know. Hanny, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of interested by this because I'm I was just thinking, obviously, uh communities are so important to us in how we accrue knowledge. And I don't necessarily think that's always a bad thing that folk traditions, for example, often pass knowledge down by oral traditions and, and tales are, are sort of warped and changed over time. And the context of your interaction with somebody might change your experience, which can sometimes be a beneficial thing. So I don't think it's always a bad thing. However, I think when it comes to things like reading lists, popular books, there's um, a real influence of things like um, popular creators or social media, um, sexy books, which have got like, you know, beautiful covers. And you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it's definitely got like gold leaf and some like geometric design on the front and you've fallen victim to to it if you're you're listening to this I know you have but like obviously algorithms are so important for us now when we are trying to find resources trying to find reviews is it even possible to accrue knowledge in an unbiased way is it possible to get book recommendations in an unbiased way how would you unbiased yourself like even if you get out of the library probably the librarian is gonna have have selected things um, with some kind of bias I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how you can reduce your bias in kind of uh, resource consumption, if you like. I don't know that you can. And I think part of the problem is that we are a part of a society that really pushes purchasing purchasing things based on review, right? And like that in and of itself introduces bias into your decision making. Seeing what other people think, what their perception of a book, of the information within a book was, or something, you know, something that they bought and how it works, that bias will influence you into either deciding to buy or not to buy. And similarly, I think that when we see all these books pop up on pages or we see reviews by them, it's almost impossible to get away from. I think if you were really to try and consume something as unbiased as possible, it would be walking into a library to a specific section and then pulling a book randomly from a shelf. Like, because even as you said, asking the librarian, they're going to have their own bias and perspectives about like what is good and what is not in terms of writing style, the authors, like the subject matter, so on and so forth. And so the best way you can do that, I think, is just pick a bunch of books that sound interesting to you and then make your own opinions. Um, but even I, like, when I'm in, like when I'm studying something new and I'm looking for sources, I will often go to blogs and be like, what are books that you would recommend for, like, learning this thing? And that brings that bias into what then I decide to learn from. So I don't know that it is possible to get away from it. I agree. And, like, it's like we've all read, been forced to read, like, <laughs> horrifically dry books. But, like, even those horrifically dry books have bias, right? <laughs> it's like... I don't know, ego and, and not to use Jung and Freud words here, but ego, that, that aspect of humanity that has like opinions and bias, that is what makes us human, I guess. We're not robots, you know, like, so I don't think that there's any way for us to possibly reduce all bias but i think we have to be aware of it there's like this phrase of if you can't name it you can't tame it 
Um, or conversely, if you can name it, you can tame it. So I think that's where it's helpful of identifying, calling yourself in and calling yourself out, I think is where that's helpful to not lock yourself into an echo chamber. What do you both think about like religious bias? And I'm speaking about this more on a negative perspective, but a lot of people who come from specifically Abrahamic religions, um, I feel like enter into the occult with significant religious bias, typically again in a negative sense. Do you think that plays a significant role? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the communities that you're part of, it's, it's similar to what we were saying before, the communities you're part of can obviously shape your worldviews, and sometimes that's in a negative way. But I think if we're talking about bias that's caused by, for example, religious trauma, which I think is quite common, that's just something that an individual has to work through by themselves. And it's probably, it, it's like a whiplash effect and something that's going to um, resolve over time. I do think it's important to, I think we're going to talk about this later, re- read a variety of sources from outside your own, own tradition. Just so, because I think, especially in Hellenic circles, you got your, like, recons who are, like, super strict on particular things versus, you know, people who are maybe a little bit more lax. Seeing alternative perspectives is the only only real way that you can learn to free yourself of the, of the bias of the community and the, the groups that you're in. So it's really just about exposing yourself to a variety of sources, I think. I will say that I do think being well-rounded in your resources is a great way to try and kind of work around bias. I think it works around a couple of different ones. Cultural confirmation, that kind of group thinking bias. I think a lot of them can be lessened um, in terms of the intensity which they affect your decision-making by being well-read for different cultures, different traditions, talking to people in different communities who practice certain things that you don't. I think that's probably one of the biggest detriments that I see in kind of the younger generation of occultists and like people who are practitioners is that they walk into a singular interest and then they don't look at anything else. And I'm like, okay, so you know a lot about this one thing, but like the sages of the ancient times were people who studied such a variety of things. I mean, you had to know mathematics and science and the arts and philosophy. I mean, everything. You had to know a little bit about everything. Quite literally, they were Renaissance men and women. So in that regard, the more well-read you are in terms of a variety of different topics, I think the easier it is to kind of lessen the effect that bias has on your practicing perspective. Okay, so we've talked about bias a bit in the occult community. Okay, a lot in the the occult community. But let's talk about maybe why we care about bias as scientists. So the issue with bias in science, in my opinion, is that it introduces variables that we can't control. What we think and how we perceive an experiment, the data, or even participants in a clinical trial can all stem from bias. And when that happens, it prevents us from approaching the methodology objectively, which is literally kind of what like why we do science in the first place is to perform experiments and get data in an objective manner. And so by introducing bias, we confound our ability to do so. And this is one of the reasons why we kind of continuously touch upon this idea of double blind or blind experiments, because that is a way of having kind of a precaution put in place that removes your bias that is inherently there. You can't really get rid of it and tries to make things as objective as humanly possible. Yeah, so in science, we're, we're trying to build a representative picture and one that we can generalize to um, larger populations. We're trying to sort of understand rules about our natural world 
um, which are kind of representative and generalizable. Um, but biases are always, always, always going to creep in because just even the way that we measure things, the populations that we measure, then we're probably never going to put, capture every single population in its entirety or we're inherently limited by our measuring tools. So that's something to bear in mind. So just to give you an example of this, let's maybe like build an example of an experimental design. Um, maybe you're running a really crappy study which no that wouldn't actually exist because it's, it's bad. Um, but maybe you're looking at uh, headaches in a population. And so you've decided that you're going to put the word out for your study on the university mailing list and you want to get some students to sign up for your online survey. And you include questions about how disabling the headaches are, whether they lead to um, issues using screens, for example. But you couldn't generalize that study to the entire population, even though um, there might be questions that you consider generalizable. Why is that? Because uh, your population is going to be biased towards young people, students, maybe from an affluent background, um, because more likely to have affluent people going to university. And then there are some less obvious forms of bias. So people who are heavily disabled by headaches, who you might be interested in interviewing, they might not be able to attend university or they might not be able to use an online only form where they're sensitive to screens. It's a really contrived example, but it just shows you how studies can, can be more biased than you expect. So any good study should discuss the limitations um, that are inherent to it. And something I also wanted to ask is, do you think science can or will ever be unbiased? What are your thoughts? I mean, I think bias exists wherever humans are. So as long as humans are the ones doing the, the, doing the thing, bias will exist in varying levels. But I think inherently it will happen. Interpretation is where bias enters the equation as scientists. Aside, I mean, the experimental setup, I think, also has some biases involved if we're speaking about it on a more clinical level where we're engaging with studies with people. But, like, for instance, if you're going to do a study where quite literally like, it's a binding study, right? Does X bind to Y? Like, that is really hard, I think, to like to be biased like that data it's a yes or no question right does it bind or doesn't bind um or doesn't it bind and so in that regard i think you could say that the science itself doesn't have bias granted now that i think about it further that being said it also introduces a bunch of other questions about the nature of the binding and so i think if you go deeper into it then we get into the interpretation of data and that's where i think a lot of the bias enters from the actual um scientists performing the experiments I'm inclined to say no, because science is a methodology suggesting that it has to be performed by somebody. And parts of the scientific method are interpretation and analysis and conclusion drawing. And that is something that happens by a person. And like Bell mentioned earlier, I think bias is inherent in human nature. And so in that regard, science is not ever going to be bias free. Oh, right. I agree. And I think even the questions that we ask are inherently biased. Like it, even the fact that we're investigating a particular question um, means that we're not investigating something else, if that makes sense. The things that get funded are going to be biased by certain interests. That's true, actually, because if you talk to a lot of scientists about the field of the fields that they go into, there's usually a personal story behind it, right? And they're like, oh, so-and-so like had cancer, they had this disease, and that in and of itself introduces bias into the actual uh, hypotheses that they're presenting and things that they want to look into. Absolutely. Yeah, or like we know way, way, way more about like humans and mice than we do about... 
I don't know, I'm trying to think of a creature that's not very well studied. <laughs> I can't think of anything. Um, algae, for example, I don't know. That's a bad example. It's quite well studied. Uh, but, you know, we know, we know lots about study, about study we're systems biased, that get funded. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so yeah. I guess I kind of wanted to make this point because I think there's this myth that science is unbiased. And although we try to reduce sources of bias and it's important to discuss them in a study, there is always going to be something in there which... Uh, you should be cognizant of when you're trying to interpret study results. So let's talk about the last question. Well, last two things. What are some techniques that we can use to reduce or recognize our bias? And then kind of a, another question to add on to that is that we've already addressed this a little bit, so we can you know skip this if we want to. But do you think bias is... In what situations do you think bias might actually be a good thing? Start with the last question that I asked first. <laughs> I think it can improve your ability to make decisions. We have bias for a reason. Um, so, you know, it helps us to uh, be drawn towards a certain path or um, make a decision more quickly rather than being kind of overwhelmed and, and um, not being sure where to go. So, yeah, I think that's a benefit. Um, some things that are introduced by cultural programming might enrich your practice or might um, take you down a road that you wouldn't necessarily have gone down if you were taking it completely kind of clinical robot-like perspective. So it's not necessarily always a bad thing. I think the important thing is that you are cognizant of it and you're, you remain aware of it so that you can um, address it where it needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I kind of already talked about my thoughts on this, um, addressing bias where it is and acknowledging that, that, it, that it will be there and it exists, I think, in everything. And so I think constantly calling in yourself like to be like what why do i have this reaction um, is a good way to check that your bias doesn't teeter into something that's detrimental as opposed to something that's just kind of a part of living our lives as humans yeah i think it is positive i mean in many ways i think the bias is kind of the one of the fundamental bases behind how passionately people care about things things and other people i think it's a part of human nature almost and that the bias leads to some very strong emotional responses i don't always think it's a bad thing necessarily um but i do think it can be an obstacle in certain um, circumstances that we like we've said the entire episode need to be aware of now to the first part of what i said earlier some ways to reduce our bias so something that i do um a lot in my own practice and I do even outside of the occult. I think the most important tenet when it comes to considering our own biases that affect how we perceive the world is by allowing ourselves to consider multiple worldviews. And I you know, put that in quote. And if you aren't willing to, to do that, it's almost a bias in and of itself, which is kind of ironic. But only when you consider possibilities that seem maybe ridiculous to you at first or completely unrealistic, can you kind of start to uncover the biases that maybe you didn't know that you had or the ones that you are aware of but you've chosen to ignore for some reason or another. So I give the example that I mentioned earlier. I like to sit down a lot and do something called mind mapping. Yes, this is the, the mind map that you would draw on a paper in like middle school prior to actually writing your paper. I hated it back then, but I find it quite useful now. And in this instance, essentially, the middle is like, I don't know, let me use find an actual example. 
let's say the middle is a piece of data that I've generated. For every assumption that I make, potentially based on a, on a bias, I'll draw a line to the perceptions gleaned from it or the conclusions that I've drawn from it. And I think once you start this process, you'll quickly find that you've ended up making a lot of assumptions based on some biases that you that you hold. And if you can't maybe stem it from a particular bias, it might be one of those things where it's like you didn't know that you, you had the bias, you don't know what you don't know. And so once you've kind of mapped all of that out, it lets you go back to the original data or question or whatever and look at it objectively. It's a way of removing your preconceived notions from whatever your initial question or your data is, and then considering everything and then allowing you to objectively say, yes, this is probably the more objective conclusion versus maybe something else that I like want to believe. It's not going to remove all of the bias by any means. Still in kind of that final analysis, there will be some level of bias. But I think by presenting yourself that those worldviews, it makes it more apparent to yourself, like to you. And so you can be more aware of what you have going in. Yeah, I think we would all love to be robots and create like mathematical models where we've kind of abstracted all the viewpoints and um, we've done, we've kind of constructed this really generalizable model of the world, but that's not really how it works in a felt setting. Mm -hmm. I see people saying things like, oh, you can be less biased by reading historical sources. But have you have you met historians? Uh, <laughs> they tend to be very biased themselves. I think reading a variety of sources, um, paying attention to the historiography can all help. Just talking to people um, from a variety of different backgrounds, different traditions. I think you mentioned this before, but like running a control. So we were talking about a little bit about hindsight bias. Doing a control or paying attention to your like baseline can help a little bit so that you're not confirmation biasing yourself or like hindsight biasing yourself into um, believing various things just like being more mindful of where you are on a normal day-to-day well that is the end of our final episode of season one yay to us <laughs> for getting this far we will see you in about a month with our next episode so stay looking out for that we will update you on all of our social media and also in our discord if you haven't joined please do um i will leave the link in the episode description and then if you aren't following us on Instagram, you can find us at Test Tapes and Cauldrons. Pretty easy. We're on there a lot. <laughs> um, so we'll get back to you, answer you, and interact with you. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. This has been such a fun um, thing for us to do as like a group. So we'll see you when season two starts. All right. Bye, everyone. And have a great day.